Welcome back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Dears Latham. This is episode 48. It's the start of 1981 and a momentous year this would be. The Russians were increasing their support for the MPLA in Luanda, and one of those who arrived was Vladimir Vasilievich Kostrachenkov. He helped establish the Pechoa anti-aircraft system between 1979 and 1981 in the south of Angola and published some of his thoughts in a book called Bush War, The Road to Quito Canabali. While most of this book is about the major battles that took place later around Quito, Kostrachenkov's explanation of what happened in the south in the very early 80s is important for us at this juncture. It was his second tour of duty of Angola. His first was as a translator in 1976, and he witnessed the civil war that broke out between the FNLA, the MPLA, and UNITA. He was based in Carmona, northern Angola, and was translating for a team of Russian advisors. He survived numerous FNLA attacks and explains how all attempts at sealing the border with the Congo failed. The FNLA fighters used dugout canoes and small light boats to move in complete silence along the many tributaries of the Congo River and infiltrated up to 300 kilometers inside Angola. They were supported by what he calls their fellow tribesmen, who were scattered all over the region, and he knew then that the struggle inside Angola was going to be a long, drawn-out affair. Now he was back three years later after completing a course at the Military Institute of Foreign Languages in Moscow. When he arrived, Angola had begun secret negotiations with Zaire, trying to get them to close down all FNLA's bases to stop attacks. If Zaire agreed, then Angola would stop supporting the breakaway Katanga province. What's fascinating about Kostrachenkov's experience is his description of how dilapidated the Angolan Air Force was before the early 1980s. He was involved in training MiG-21s and MiG-17 pilots, but the Russians decided to stop supplying the latter as they were unsuitable even for training purposes. But the MiG-21s were a different story and could take the battering dished out in Africa. What really changed things, at least from his point of view, was the arrival of the MiG-23s and Sukhoi-22 fighter bombers. The SA Air Force began to pick up that by the end of 1981, the Angolan Air Force was becoming far more aggressive as they took advantage of the newer fighter jets. It was in November of 1981 that South African Air Force pilots would shoot down their first MiG since the Korean War. More about that saga in a later podcast. The Russians realized that the Angolan army couldn't conduct military activities without normal air support and anti-aircraft defenses. Some subunits had been put together in the preceding year after completing their courses at Soviet military colleges, but the SA Air Force flew over southern Angola doing basically whatever they pleased. At least as long as they avoided Swapo and Fapla anti-aircraft defenses, which were deploying the ZU-23-2 twin-barreled auto-cannon as well as the 14.5mm ZPU-4 machine gun. These were very effective weapons against both aircraft and ground troops, as you've heard already. They barked fire with deadly force, as the Russians would say. There were also rockets, the Strela-2 and Strela-2M, which were shoulder-fired armaments. The SODF learned to fear these, but there was a major weakness. They only had a range of up to 2,500 meters and a minimum of 150. The SA Air Force flew at an altitude of more than 3,500 meters because of the mountainous landscape in Lubongo and the capital, Luanda. Mirages also conducted lightning raids. They would hit and run. Vladimir Kostrachenkov witnessed many attacks by buccaneers and maintains in his book that he saw them hit ANC camps, Swapo and Fapla, but he also saw air raids which bombed purely civilian targets from time to time. Pretoria denied this, and as Kostrachenkov notes, 
Either they were incorrectly informed by military intelligence or they did this to teach the Angolans a lesson. We've already heard how poor intelligence had stymied a number of SADF attacks, so it's highly likely that civilians were bombed, whatever SADF commanders have said. It's the nature of war inside civilian areas and to expect this not to happen or to try and trot out a narrative that it never did is really foolish. President Dos Santos apparently confronted the Russian head of mission, General Shaknovich, and his head of staff, General Inyuzov, asking how come it was so easy for the SA Air Force to bomb southern Angola at will. An embarrassing question to pose to representatives of a supposed superpower. It was decided to send Russian and Cuban anti-aircraft sections to conduct these defences themselves, and Kostrachenkov was part of this rollout in 1981. Of course, Moscow denied this at the time, but even at the time, the evidence was indisputable. The Russians viewed the Angolan 5th military district around southern Angola as weakly defended and decided it needed an upgrade. So a group of specialists from the Soviet Union arrived in 1980 to select suitable positions for ground-to-air missiles. Kostrachenkov set off with these specialists to Lubango. The plan was to protect the important town which was home of Tobias Aneko, that SWAPO's training base. The South Africans had targeted this base a number of times, particularly the preceding year in the warm-up to operations Skeptic, as you've heard. It wasn't going to be easy constructing defences there. Three anti-aircraft divisions were needed and one would protect the other as well as the base itself. They formed a triangle so that two divisions could attack any aircraft flying in from any direction. Each division would cover the other two, and if one came under attack, two others would alter their aim to deal with the incoming aircraft. However, if you take a close look at the Lubango district on strategic maps or Google Earth using the 3D app, you'll see that the summit of the triangle was limited by the range of fire caused by the mountains and distances between each. The mountains also hindered the launching of their rockets. It's not advisable to aim your missile too low in a civilian area. A division set on a mountain commands excellent view of the ground if the enemy attacks along roads, but the Russians had to set up on high ground while the mirages would attack horizontally or sometimes from below. You cannot fire a missile at a negative angle. Kostrachenkov saw this firsthand. The Pechora S-125 missile system would be armed, and this can reach altitudes of around 15 kilometers. They were effective. For example, on the 7th of June 1980, while attacking Swapo's Tobias Haneko training camp during Operation Skeptic, aka Smoke Shell, Major Franz Pretorius and Captain R.C. Dupassi who were both flying Mirage F-1s, were hit by S-125s. Pretorius's aircraft was hit in a fuel line and he had to perform a dead stick landing at Air Force Base on Dungwa. Duplessis' aircraft sustained heavier damage and he had to divert to Rolkana forward airstrip where he landed with only the main undercarriage extended. Both aircraft were repaired though and returned to service. But the Mirages and Impalas would fly at 50 meters above ground, meaning the rockets could not aim. The Russian specialist with Kostrachenkov spent some time in Lubango trying to find the best angles in an attempt at stopping these low-level attacks. But he says the South Africans always seem to find a new depression or hollow to pass through. Kostrachenkov spent almost two weeks in Lubango with the specialists, measuring sites for the defences using theodolites. There were half a dozen points that could allow anti-aircraft divisions to cover each other and the target area. But there were two places in particular where low-flying planes had to be attacked using Strela shoulder-fired rockets or anti-aircraft guns since the Pechora complex couldn't cover these gullies. 
The Russians had installed the Pechora at a suitable spot on the high ground and set up the command center and division positions suiting the topography. One night, a Russian ship secretly entered the port of Mokamidis, what is known as Namibe today, and offloaded the rockets. These were hauled along at night through the mountain pass to Lubango and set up, ready for the next South African attack. Once everything was installed, control of the area was handed over to Cubans, and the SADF intelligence apparently had no idea that the Pechora were around when they attacked during Operation Skeptic. By April 1981, along the cut line, daily contacts were being reported by 3-2 Battalion, and by mid-year, the level of insurgency was off the charts. 3-2 was trying to stem the tsunami, for example, on the 14th of April. Colonel Ferreira was ordered to attack Swapo's northwestern front headquarters, as we heard last week. Remember, he had been hauled over the coals in January after targeting Angolan army units along with Swapo and was ordered to avoid any further conflict with the Angolans. His target in April was to be Kuamato once more, the scene of his previous assaults on Fapla. I guess he shook his head after receiving the orders. One minute, he was scolded for attacking Fapla. The next, he was sent back into Fapla's backyard and then told to avoid the Angolans. The SADF by now had picked up that Swapo's western front HQ was near Chana Munde Jabala, about six kilometers northeast of Kuamato. Radio intercepts pinpointed the location and it was decided that a joint operation was required to put it out of action. Operation Hotpal, or Wooden Pole, combined 3-2 Battalion and the Parabats once more. Colonel Jan Breidenbach was back in the hot seat. He'd lead a Sabre team from the Parabats 44 Parachute Brigade and the Air Force, as well as engineers from 25 Field Squadron, would operate as support. As Ferreira surveyed his maps, he was struck by the vastness of the target area. It was spread over an estimated 880,000 square meters and housed a Swapo force believed to be up to 200 strong. Operational Order 12-81 outlined that proper and physical reconnaissance was to be carried out before any attack after the somewhat shambolic intelligence you heard about previously. Lieutenant Willem Ratta was placed in charge of a recce team which entered Angola and reported back after some days. They confirmed a large number of foxholes east of the base, as well as three anti-aircraft guns on the western side facing the China. Remember, China is like a depression that sometimes is full of water, but during dry season, many would turn into dusty, salty flats. In this case, the China did have some water. On the 15th of April, 3-2's Echo Company crossed the border on foot just west of Beacon 13 and began moving north. It wasn't long before contact was made with 40 Swapo soldiers who were at a waterhole. One Swapo was killed, the rest retreated north. It was now likely they'd raise an alarm, but the SADF decided to go ahead with the assault on Swapo's base. Breitenbach's Sabre team entered Angola at first light on the 16th of April, but he was mechanized and all vehicles had anti-aircraft guns mounted to deal with Swapo's heavy weapons. It was hoped that if the SA Air Force didn't finish off these AA guns, then the heavy machine guns on the back of the Biffles would do the job. As happened previously, Breitenbach's team got lost in the flat featureless terrain and couldn't link up with Echo Company. Eventually he decided to fire flares to allow Echo to locate him, but he was now within 10 kilometers of Swapo's base and that gave his position away. Still, they waited until first light on April 17th to launch their strike on Swapo. Before they could move in, Swapo opened fire on where they thought the South Africans were, east of China Mundi Javala complex. 
At 0620, they let rip with 120mm and 82mm, the barrage lasting 10 minutes. This puzzled both 3-2 Battalion's Echo Company and Breitenbach's Sabre Group, as there were no SADF units at that position. Swapo apparently was firing at random. The SAF was sent in Impalas at 0745, but they missed the anti-aircraft guns, which were then assaulted by Alouette gunships. One chopper was hit and managed to limp back to the assembly safe area. The failure of the Impala air attack didn't stop the ground assault. First, four Pumas dropped a string of parabats into three stopper groups about a kilometer north of the base, and by 0813, Echo Company's troops had made it all the way into the center of Swapo's base. Given the noise and flares and whatnot over the past three days, it was virtually deserted. There were a few Swapo soldiers who surrendered. Ferreira knew immediately what had happened. The Swapo barrage early in the morning was merely a cover to delay any attack as Swapo completed their tactical withdrawal. 3-2 set about destroying the base, a rather hollow victory, it must be said. Colonel Ferreira then made one of those radio calls you make when you're pretty sure the answer will be no, and requested permission to pursue the enemy to Cuamato, the nearest large town. That was where Fapla waited, and Pretoria was still adamant that the Angolan army should be left alone. Ferreira then formally complained about the SAF's inability to hit the target. Only one 250kg bomb dropped by one of the six Impalas had actually hit the base, and worse, the helicopter gunships started their final run so far east of the base that they'd missed all signs of Swapo withdrawal. The MPLA, meanwhile, appears to have guessed that the SADF was not allowed to pursue their FAPLA soldiers and pressed home a tactical advantage. First, on the morning of the 20th of April, 3-2's Charlie Company temporary base south of Cuamata was bombarded by FAPLA using 122mm rockets. Colonel Ferreira made another forlorn radio request for permission to follow up and was denied. At 1600 hours on the same day, a patrol from Charlie Company and Fapla began a firefight southwest of Cuamato. Fapla withdrew after an exchange of fire and the patrol shifted position eastwards. There were only 10 members of the small platoon and they immediately came under fire from 82mm mortars. After Alouette gunships were called in, the new MPLA and Swapo tactics were deployed. As the Alouettes swung around the firefight position, Fapla opened fire on them with two SA-7 anti-aircraft missiles. Swapo's new tactic appeared to be working. They lure the South Africans into Angola, then hand over the fight to Fapla and their Cuban and Russian advisers. Fapla, in turn, had increased the size of their patrols to 50 men at least, which began to harass the South Africans more aggressively. Ferreira, once again, was about to blow a fuse but he was forced to withdraw his men south of the cutline on the 21st of April, having achieved very little beyond forcing Swapo out of its HQ for a short while. The western area of this war was intensifying. Regular ambushes and the destruction of road links between specific towns was the order of the day. Places like Kumato, Onjiva, Chedi Namakunde, Anhanka, Dover and Chitano were death traps for Swapo and Plan. South African special forces were concentrating north of Mongua as well, along the road to Avali and Mupa towards the major crossroads at Kuvango. On the night of 26th of May, a combined operation was launched involving 3-2 Battalion, 44 Parachute Brigade and Special Forces specifically aimed at ambushing vehicles on the road between Zangongo and Lubango. The idea was to destroy stormwater drains. This would cause problems for Swapo and Fapla in the rainy season. The roads would be submerged in places and would hamper logistics. 
First Lieutenant Rutter, of course, led an 18-man reconnaissance team, and they would be responsible for the main ambushes. They would lay three TM-46 mines on the road surface, connecting each with cordex. The team leader would then trigger the mines when he received the signal. It wasn't long before vehicles began to roll past. The first was a star truck, which was blown up, flying through the air and landing in the trees at the roadside. The reconnaissance team destroyed the wreckage by lobbing a phosphorus grenade into the twisted remains, and it burned into the morning. At 0445, another truck rumbled southwards from Lubango to Zangongo, and the driver hit the brakes when he spotted the still smouldering wreck. But it was too late, and the recce team opened fire with small arms and an RPG-7 rocket launcher. The truck was carrying fuel drums and exploded, killing all three swapper on board. Ten kilometers north of Chiemba, the Special Forces team blew up another vehicle with an RPG at around 1900 hours that night. At the same time, one of the two Sabre teams from 44 Parachute Regiment under Colonel Breitenbach rigged a culvert 30 kilometers northeast of Anjiba with plastic explosives. They triggered these, blowing a four-meter-wide gap on the road, and it was now impassable. Meanwhile, a second Sabre team was patrolling near Kuomato, when they surprised a group of six Swapo at an observation post around 12 kilometers southeast of that town. They killed three, the others got away. The Sabre team wasn't done. They turned west and blew up a culvert on the main road between Zangongo and Mongoa. All the Rekis and 44 Battalion Parabats then made it back to base, unscathed. However, there was a much bigger operation being planned. In fact, there were two that were to take place back to back. Codenamed Operation Carnation, the first was launched on the 20th of June, and was set to continue until Operation Protea in August. As with other preparatory ops, Carnation was going to offer some success, but also some failure. The SADF special forces were becoming better and better at the job of silent killing, stalking the enemy inside their own territory. But the political leadership back in Pretoria wanted a big bang. Carnation was originally planned to destroy all Swapo's logistic routes and bases in the immediate area north of the cutline from Beacons 12 to 19. The plan was to drive Swapo north of Kuvalai, which lies due north of Anjiva. After some time, the attacks were extended east, covering the area all the way to Beacon 28. If you have a map, draw a line from the Namibian-Angolan border directly north towards Ayonde, and that pretty much gives you an idea of the extent of the coming action. The brunt of the fighting would be borne by 3-2 Battalion at first, of course, along with 44 Parachute Brigade. Other units drafted in included 6 and 3 SAI, or SA Infantry, 101, 201 and 701 Battalions, as well as 1 SA Coloured Corps and 5 Reconnaissance Regiment. Operating across the border, these units found the first Swapo base, but it had been evacuated. A second base was located, and only one Swapper guerrilla was killed. Locals then tipped off the South Africans that there was a base a few kilometers east of Omupanda. The special forces duly headed there in the morning of 22nd June and attacked, killing two Swapo. Then they ambushed a truck that night on the Monguan Onjiba road, believing it was being driven by Swapo. And at the same time, it was now clear that Swapo was using a different tactic. They would move rapidly from one base to another every three to five days, this made it more difficult for the Alouette gunships to spot them. Arms and food caches were left throughout this area, and although many were found by the SADF and destroyed, many more were not. The game of cat and mouse continued through June 1981 and into July. On the 1st of July, Colonel Ferreira sent Golf Company to Chanapali, which was directly over the cutline from Ianana, where they struck it lucky. 
in a violent firefight. 17 Swapo were killed and three captured. On the 5th of July, the Swapo patrol was ambushed east of Anhaka and three more were killed. And yet, the main prize, which was the location of the Northern Front headquarters, remained elusive. Each time the SADF mobilized against what was reported to be the location, it was found abandoned. Sometimes just a few hours before the South Africans arrived. Clearly, Swapo was receiving some kind of information, but how? The SADF special forces prided themselves in deception, but it seemed it wasn't enough. On the 7th of July, 3-2's Foxtrot Company killed seven Swapo southeast of Dover, and the gunships spotted a large base. This was a base on the main road northeast from Onjiva to Kaundo, and big enough it was thought to house 200 men. Foxtrot attacked immediately, but once again Swapo had left, and only two soldiers were found. To their credit, they fought back, but both were killed. This was becoming irksome. Foxtrot Company moved swiftly to Mupa, to the north of Onjiva, and occupied the town, killing one Swapo soldier. Again, the main group of guerrillas had left. Perhaps the most frustrating moment was at 1400 hours 15 on the 8th of July when the Alouettes located another base 8 kilometers northeast of China Umbi. 3-2's Alpha Company was airlifted there immediately and there was a skirmish. During the contact, two more Swapo were killed. They were not alone. The Pumas drew 14.5mm and SA-7 missile fire and had to withdraw themselves. An airstrike was duly called in and the Impalas struck. Alpha attacked a short while later, but Swapo had somehow managed to withdraw in the teeth of these assaults. It was a tactical withdrawal, and they had taken the all-important anti-aircraft guns with them, except for one SA-7 system. Day by day, the stings, the contacts, and the firefights went on, drawing the SADF across southern Angola, all the while around Onjiva and Zangonga. It was these two towns that were going to be the target for a much bigger offensive called Operation Protea, which was going to involve more than 4,000 SADF troops. Next episode, we'll deal with the preamble to the major battles fought during this offensive. And speaking of offensive, to my friends fighting in the Ukraine, sorry about the poor pronunciation, but Putin bude permorshni, mezitubul. And for those seeking insight into wars, my friend Michael Buster in Phoenix, USA, has a series on the Anglo-Boer War as part of his Forgotten Wars podcast. It's an international view of an African conflict, so take a listen. If you'd like to contact me, send an email through my website, abwarpodcast.com, or direct message me on Twitter, at Des Latham. Until next, dos vidanya. Mm-hmm.